penny stock that actually exploded like 1600% after they announced a partnership with NVIDIA. Beamer has been able to attract customers like Netflix, CBS, VMware, Walmart, and a lot of other big names. So it's really exciting, Kev. I, I'm quite interested overall. They're issuing enough shares to raise 12, but probably more likely $14 million at seven bucks. So it's almost a 30% discount to the market. So it's just such an aggressive discount. Hey guys, welcome back to the Beyond the Edge podcast. Uh, today we're hitting a milestone. It's actually our 10th episode. So that's 10 episodes where we've covered over 30 different micro, small, mid-cap stocks. Um, and we're missing Pete, our resident trend tracker today. He thinks that a holiday with his pregnant wife is a good excuse to miss the pod. <laughs> um, we told him he better at least be spreading the good word of the pod wherever he is. <laughs> uh, but seriously, right. congrats to Pete and Michelle. They've got a baby boy incoming, so a little edge analyst incubating right now. <laughs> Fortunately, we got you. We got Mr. Fundamentals. Declan, what's uh, what's happening with you? Anything cool happened in your portfolio this week? Hey, what's going on, Kev? Yeah, no, it was a pretty quiet week overall. I mean... We got new inflation data, and of course, that's always exciting to watch as investors react and usually freak out to a couple of basis point misses. So I always enjoy watching how the market responds to those. But for myself, it was pretty quiet. How about you? Pretty quiet, but actually, I don't know if you noticed, um, Bolero's gone through a bit of a ride since we talked about them. I don't know if you've taken a look, but like from you know January 31st, to February 9th, it, it popped 40%. <laughs> um, so oh, that wow. was uh, around the time that we started talking about them. So well, what, what's odd though, is you could see earnings didn't come out till February 5th. And this big move started on mm -hmm. January 31st. So it was like a very suspect timing for a move, which is very interesting. Interesting. Yeah, basically, what but, you're saying is yeah. that people should be paying attention to our picks then, hey? <laughs> well, there's a there's a few cool things that will tie into some news that are actually some former stocks that we talked about, like Recursion, um, that mm -hmm. announced like uh, some agreement with uh, Nvidia, or no, Nvidia invested in Recursion. So there's a few few good points we've had. Um, okay, well today we're covering a few cool things. So one, a penny stock that actually exploded like 1600 percent after they announced a partnership with Nvidia. Uh, activist Carl Investor. Uh, Carl Investor, activist Carl Icahn. He bought a 10% stake in mid-cap company JetBlue. So we got another airline we're talking about. Finally, Lyft. <laughs> a mid-cap just made one of the most epic typos you could put in an earnings release. Someone's getting fired for sure. We're going to make fun of them a bit and then dig into that. Uh, so if you're new, we do this every Thursday. We post it every Sunday. Look, let's just get straight into it, Deck. Let's get into this, man. So for the first topic today... You sent this over earlier in the week, and this was just like a mind-blowing uh, piece of news. Like Beamer, this imaging company, and partnered up with NVIDIA, basically to accelerate the adoption of a new video standard called AV1. Something I'm wrapping my head around. I actually wasn't familiar with this at all. But upon the announcement, the stock shot up 1,600%. So just like an absolutely massive jump. I forget the exact details, but it took this from, a, I think it was a 20 or 30 million micro cap to over 200 million uh, real fast. <laughs> so that was wild. Um, key points with this agreement. So there's a collaboration between Beamer and NVIDIA. 
It's looking to facilitate, like I said, the transition to this new AV1 format, uh, which is more efficient, but there's a lot of challenges in adoption due to the complexity and the cost of upgrading existing videos. Uh, number two, Beamer's Tech, which is supported by NVIDIA's encoder. It offers automated processes to transfer video li libraries to the AV1 format while maintaining quality, but compressing the size significantly. Number three, this proposed solution, it, the idea is to make the adoption of modern video formats seamless, cost-effective, yada, 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 make this a lot easier. So deck, <laughs> that was long-winded. I wanna get over to you now uh, and ask you a little bit about your opinion on this. So what do you think? How might the launch of Beamer's new video cloud service on Amazon AWS, uh, which is powered by NVIDIA, how do you think that'll influence the accessibility and affordability of video processing for, I guess, both businesses and content creators? Yeah, you know what, Kev, after diving into this business, I found it actually really cool and also the business model itself quite simple to understand. So Beamer basically uses these AI trained computer vision processing to make videos smaller by up to 50%. And this leads to a lot less storage use as well as the ability to move these videos across networks much faster. And this is all well done while maintaining the video quality throughout. So just from that point, you can see how customers saving up to 50% on video storage is a huge value add. And if you've ever actually tried to create, upload, or store a video, you can understand what I mean when it yeah. is a pain in the butt. And this could be a game changer there. So kind of understanding how it works. Well, Beamer's algorithms basically make predictions on where human eyes are most likely to view the videos. And then it can remove various pixels within the video so that it focuses primarily on the key areas where viewers will watch it. And this allows it to compress it and ultimately make the, the whole amount of data that it takes up quite significantly less. Now, by partnering with NVIDIA, as, as well as like operating within AWS, the biggest cloud provider in the cloud video storage market, this makes Beamer's tech, or, or it really takes it over the edge by introducing the world's first accelerated video optimization platform with up to 10x performance. So what does that mean? Well, it's like putting Beamer's tech on steroids. With NVIDIA, Beamer can take on larger video libraries and make more of them using a lot less computer processing. This allows customers to compress these videos and transfer them a lot more efficiently. And it also speaks to why Beamer has been able to attract customers like Netflix, CBS, VMware, Walmart, and a lot of other big names. So it's really exciting, Kev. I, I'm quite interested overall, and I didn't realize how substantial this partnership would be, but I think this takes them to a whole nother level in terms of competitive positioning now that NVIDIA is a partner. Yeah, super impressive company. They're an Israeli-based company, obviously. Startup Nation is very well known for uh, new emerging technologies. So very impressive. Surprised I'd never heard of it before. I was even seeing quotes of it being uh, sometimes even more than a 50% compression in the file size. And when you think where everything's going with the amount of data that's about to start flooding our servers, once we really have spatial web coming into play, even just uh, autonomous vehicles are going to create a monstrous surge uh, in the amount of data that we need to process and that we're not even well equipped to to handle that so technologies like this are wild what, what blows my mind is how did this little 20 million dollar israeli penny stock uh listed in the states mind you um 
get this kind of agreement from, there was such a small company, like they did about a million dollars revenue the year before. Um, they're net, they're, they're a net loss company, like in the, sorry, in the last six months, it was a million revenue. And at the end of the day, they lost about a million dollars. So for an R and D heavy tech company, it's really not a big loss, nothing to be scared of. Um, and then they're able to get this NVIDIA partnership, which I honestly think what mesmerizes me the most out of this is the fact that NVIDIA allowed them to use their name in the press release, because a lot of these big companies are are very tight-lipped about that. So I wonder two things, you know, one, is there going to be a press release, um, some kind of retraction or something in the next couple of days, or are they just going to get slapped on the hand from NVIDIA, which is possibly more likely? Or is there some deeper reason for NVIDIA wanting to be involved? Like, is there... They just announced a, uh, a public offering of shares at seven bucks. Um, I wonder, you know, Think Equity's running the book on that one. Is I, I'd be super curious to see if there's any strategics uh, like Nvidia actually placing an investment into it. Um, super mm -hmm. curious to watch that. See what happens. Yeah, no, big time. And I think like you nailed it on the head, Kev. I think it's important for viewers to really understand the whole dynamic of Beamer and where this all began. So. They really started building this technology about 12 years ago and have built up their patent portfolio to over 52 uh, recognized patents. And then from the partnership standpoint with NVIDIA, they actually began their partnership in Q1 of 2023. So surprisingly, there wasn't as much traction or noticeability back then. Of course, now things have kind of really panned out, but the partnership itself has been developing over the past year. And, you know, if you're an investor looking at their historical financials, you might be scratching your head because you're looking at their revenue and it's kind of stayed flat, even declined over the past couple of years. And their R&D expenses really haven't jumped. I think they've even declined as well. So what I think happened here is that NVIDIA took on a lot of probably the R&D and integration costs associated with this partnership and probably deferred revenues over the long run. But I think what they saw and what is quite clear is that Beamer has some unique technology that provides a lot of value for these video organizations and even just individual developers themselves. But, you know, when you look at the whole cloud video storage market, it's expected to grow at about 16% annually and hit about 13.5 billion by 2025. Now, Beamer actually provides a really good outline of its business model giving you a good insight into how they're expected to make money moving forward. And so basically what they expect is that out of a total addressable market of 13.5 billion, they are going to create cost savings about 30% of that, which it comes to 4.05 billion. And then from there, they're going to derive for every 1% of value added by the company, it equates to about $40.5 million of value and Beamer's going to take a one third cut on this. So you can expect that from a 1% value add, they could make about $13.36 million of potential revenue. And keep in mind, that's just 1% of value add. So really there's pretty big runway of growth here overall, it seems. And, you know, clearly looking historically, the business doesn't seem to be in a great financial position, but having a player like NVIDIA take on those costs up front so that over the long run, this partnership can really develop and flourish is such an advantage that, you know, I really never saw coming. And to me, it's just like, man, don't you wish you could have just got ahead of this and saw the right. partnership back <laughs> in Q1 and jumped at this opportunity. So smacking my head for that one, but obviously in hindsight, it's always easier. So 
quite a cool yeah, partnership you know, overall though you don't see moves like that often like that's the move of a biotech stock or like a, a gold mine or something you know what i mean to see such a partnership like that i was trying to think of how we would even position ourselves like i'd say we've actually held a few israeli stocks over the years and seen some pretty cool innovation out of there but to get ahead of something like this i mean I, i'm mad that we weren't there too but man good for them um i was actually contemplating if there's some way of getting in on this financing it's just it's think equity i don't know anybody there it's a u.s listing i'd probably have to make an account and uh, i'm just a little butthurt because one of the biggest things i have against this company now is that they're issuing enough shares to raise 12 but probably more likely 14 million dollars at seven bucks so it's almost a 30 percent discount to the market so it's just such an aggressive discount that i it almost feels like unnecessary um, but this could be one of those stocks that I, I, you know, I sit, sit on the sidelines and I pout because I missed the financing and then this thing goes to 30 bucks, <laughs> you know what I mean? A 200 million market cap with a partnership in NVIDIA and a technology that is desperately needed that I feel like there's, I'm, I'm certainly not buying it today, but if I saw it dip a little bit more, I'd be pretty close to just throwing a flyer on this. You know what I mean? Put it on red. <laughs> yeah, no, I second that it. It's hard to like realize the value of it right now just because we don't know how much they can actually tap on an annual basis quite yet. But it is, you know, still sitting around 150 to $200 million market cap. Like you have to ask yourself, even with the jump, is there more growth ahead? So, and it seems like it is. It's just a matter of how long it will take to realize that. And so, like you, I think just keeping it on the radar and watching if there is a significant dip or or an opportunity to get this at a meaningful discount, I think they're well positioned for growth. And, you know, they have the backing and with potentially this additional capital as well. They're a lot better funded in finance than they have been in the past. So a lot of positives looking forward for them. Yeah, good good for them. Um for the next topic I want to dig into is we're going back to airlines. So last time we were talking about airlines was Spirit with the uh, door gate, whatever you want to call it, when the door blew off the airline and scared the crap out of people. Uh, now we're talking about Icon taking a 10% ownership stake in JetBlue. So I guess basically some, some simple terms of the deal, Icon, he's built his way up to a 10% stake through Icon Enterprises, which is a publicly traded company, just so you know, IEP, I think the ticker is, take a look. Uh, he thinks it's undervalued, um, you know, following stock gains of 21%, Icon plans to engage and discuss with the company about potential board representation too. That's part of the Icon MO. He's an activist shareholder, if you don't know. Um, you know, Icon stake, it was, it was accumulated through purchases in January and February, so pretty quick. And the intention is, yeah, he wants to get onto the board quickly, but let's see. Uh, response, they, sounds like the, the company is open to it, but there's a lot we can dig into here because you know, his ownership of JetBlue, we, we can look at the fundamentals there, but this is not Icon's first dabble into the into the airline space. Back in the 80s, he took over, a, I think it was almost up to, I think it came out to a half of TWA. Um, I, of course, wasn't in the, in the money game back then, but, um, you know, considering our Carl Icon's history with the airline industry and previous investments like this, you know, Deck, what do you think are some potential challenges or improvements he could advocate for it? JetBlue. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, first and foremost, if you don't know, Carl Icahn is known as being one of the most ruthless activist investors out there. He has a reputation for pressuring management. And when they fail to meet his demands, he doesn't hesitate to squeeze every dollar he can out of the business. You know, safely put, 
when Icon joins a board, it's no longer the shareholders company, it's Icon. So it's important to keep that in mind. And to really illustrate this is what you said, Kevin. So, you know, back in 1985, Icon started buying more than 32% of this company called Transworld Airlines, which is a commercial airlines business. And interestingly, TWA tried to get acquired by another company, Texas Airco, for about $790 million to avoid Icon's takeover. But it was actually TWA's unions that blocked the deal and supported Icon's takeover deal instead. What happened from here is basically the corporate radar moved in for his final kill. First, Icon appointed himself as the chairman of the airline. Then, in 1980, sorry, 1988, he took the company private, which netted him about $469 million, while TWA took on more than $540 million in debt. Shortly after that, in 1991, Icon capped the company's growth by purchasing just 12 new aircrafts instead of the 100 needed to replace TWA's aging fleet. But it was what he did next that put the nail in the coffin. So in 1991, Icon sold TWA's prized London routes to American Airlines for $445 million. These were the company's prized assets, and without them, it was a shell of itself. The next year, TWA filed for bankruptcy, and Icon stepped down as the chairman in 1993. But he wasn't finished yet, because demanding that he gets paid from TWA, t- sorry, TWA's execs, they basically offered him a deal called the Caribou Ticket Agreement, which allowed Icon to buy any ticket that connected through St. Louis mm. for 55 cents on the dollar and resell them at a discount for eight years. It was later estimated that this deal alone cost TWA $100 million per year. So, you know, under, unsurprisingly, the company was in a lot worse position. They were losing money now. And... In 1995, they filed for bankruptcy once again and eventually merge, merged with American Airlines. So when you look at this thing, it's it's understandable why Icon sees JetBlue to be undervalued. If you look at the company's price-to-book value ratio, it's just 0.75. And I use this metric purposefully in this example because book value or the shareholder equity is equal to the total a company's total assets minus its total liabilities. So in other words, it is the value of the remaining assets after the company were to fully liquidate and pay off its entire liabilities. But since JetBlue's market cap value uh, as of February 15th was just $2.5 billion, it's below the company's book value of $3.34 billion. If he takes over, Icon could essentially liquidate the entire company and net himself a return of 34%. And given his track, given his track record, sorry, I wouldn't be surprised if he did did just that. So, in other words, if you're a growth investor looking to take advantage of this opportunity now that Icon's in it, I wouldn't expect for long term growth, but rather for the business to be potentially liquidated, especially based on this TWA story. Yeah, fair points, man. What that was a pretty uh, ruthless <laughs> review of Icon. <laughs> uh, did you watch the Netflix documentary on him? It's good. Eh? I haven't yet. No, um, tell me have about you seen it. it. I haven't. Oh, really? Oh, well, just, just tell watch me about it, man. And, and to anybody wa- watching this, you know, just go watch it. I believe it's on Netflix. I, it was like an airplane watch for me, which was ironic, but it goes through his career. And yeah, he, he has a a mixed reputation, I guess you could say. But no, the guy's like, if there's one thing he's good at, it's uh, making money. So he's certainly done quite well. But 
TWA was a, was a flop. But one thing you missed out uh, on that story is that actually the unions did them dirty. And like you said, they, they blocked the other, uh, what was it? An acquisition from another company. Uh, they had an agreement mm-hmm. with like, you know, they had to take pay cuts, et cetera, et cetera. And they actually striked instead. So they were striking for a while. Um, and they would even show up at his house and were like uh, on the weekend and demanding to speak with him. Like it was a pretty messy, pretty messy experience. And, um, Oh man, like the story goes on and on and on. Like he ended up starting a training school for new flight attendants because to try to quickly replace the ones that are that were on strike in like real time. And obviously that wasn't kept a secret. So it made them even more mad. It, it was like, it was a nightmarish deal. So part of me likes to think that he's learned his lesson and he's not going to go quite as corporate raider. Um, but you nailed it on the head by saying like the, the book value is so attractive to a raider just to strip and pillage essentially. But man, Jet JetBlue's a, a solid airline. I, I hope that's not their fate. Um, yeah. I'd be curious to see, <laughs> maybe he does strip down assets, narrow the scope of the airline, make it smaller so that they would allow for a merger with Spirit. Something like that I could, I'd be curious to see. I don't know. I actually just thought of that right now. Yeah, no, that, that, yeah, that's, that's a really good point that I didn't think of as well. And it, it potentially would approve or incentivize regular regulators to look at the deal, uh, from a, from a more optimistic lens. Um, but like, like you said as well, I, I didn't actually realize that the, uh, employees went on strike and really tried to be a pain in the butt for him as well. But you know, that's understandable. Your job is potentially on the line. And if you've been working for that organization for a long time and somebody comes in and just decides that they want to take all the, the capital they can and squeeze out whatever money they can make, then you're going to fight and do your best to stand your ground. Yeah. So I, you know, selfishly, I look at it, the deal from Icon and, and his history as well. I, I respect it if you are like a cold-blooded, money-hungry capitalist. And, you know, even Warren Buffett used to do this back in the day. And I think that's actually what he was trying to initially do with Berkshire Hathaway. He just didn't have the stomach to let go of all these employees. But, I mean, you really got to ask yourself, like, if you could buy a company outright and net a guaranteed 34%, would you do it? So, of course, there is the caveat that people right. would lose their job and a legacy business would be tarnished, but you have to weigh those metrics and icons in a position where he can take advantage of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I used a, just looking at like a, a side-by-side of a few companies, United Airlines, Southwest Airlines, and JetBlue, just certain ratios. Well, for one, JetBlue doesn't make any money. It's, you know, net income negative. It's a loss. Whereas both United and Southwest West are profitable. And then you look at certain, you know, price to earnings, obviously JetBlue, that's irrelevant, but it's only four times for United, 20 times for Southwest. Look at the return on equity too. 10% for, for uh, Southwest, 41% for United and then the negatives for JetBlue. So it looks like there's an attractive, you know, corporate rating opportunity, but not necessarily like a fundamental investing opportunity that gets me excited. Yeah, no, I, I second it, Kev. I think Icon knows what he's doing here. And, you know, like you said, maybe he can potentially position it to grow more effectively and have those insights. He He's obviously an effective capital allocator and has a lot or achieved a lot of success. It's ultimately just 
figure trying to figure out what his intentions are here. You know, there's clearly an opportunity either way for him to liquidate the business or, uh, you know, hold on to his 10% position, help bring in some, you know, consulting and various dev- different insights and potentially turn JetBlue's business around. But, you know, overall, overall, it's once again, just talking on the airline business, it's it's not necessarily the most attractive investment opportunities because there's just such a high cost to managing these businesses. And then ultimately, you know, the the products that you are owning, in this case, airlines, depreciate in value really quickly. So you have to try yeah. and squeeze out every dollar you can from them before the business or, or the plane goes bust. And um, for for him, he, he knows that there's value, but you know, for the person looking outside in, you either got to have your faith in icon or uh, probably not look at this from a fundamental investment standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I'd say the same thing. Maybe this is a small amount of the portfolio as a flyer, uh, just based on what kind of turnaround he can pull off in the next year or two years, but long-term I'd be less excited about it. So we don't like airlines to generally, so let's move on from that. I want to talk about Lyft. This is a, this is a very amusing topic to go over. So now Lyft did report its financial results for Q4 and full year 2023, uh, looking at achievements such as record high gross bookings, highest annual ridership, uh, steps towards profitability, <laughs> keyword steps. The you know the company's focused now on operational excellence and strategic initiatives, puts it in a place for well meaningful margin expansion and positive free cash flow in 24. But it's the margin expansion that I can't wait to talk about because there's a massive typo in the earnings release. Um, I've got a lot of key points, uh, key points. So I don't want to list everything to you, but let me just give you a couple, you know, gross bookings, $3.7 billion in the quarter up 17% year over year. Obviously investors are excited to see that kind of growth. Um, skipping through to, you know, adjusted EBITDA 66 million. So positive last year, it was down significantly 250 million in the quarter. So obviously that's an improvement, but the key headline thing we want to talk about is that they said they were expecting a 500 basis point improvement. And I believe it was their EBITDA margin when in fact it was a typo and it was supposed to say half of a percent. So absolutely (laughs) so embarrassing of an error and how a press release that important can slip through so many checks and balances with such a massive um, error and have to be corrected live on a conference call is beyond me. So Okay, <laughs> with that rant, Deck, I want to kick this conversation off. Um, you know, with their new focus on operational excellence, how do you see Lyft planning to drive meaningful margin expansion to hopefully ap- uh, achieve positive free cash flow in 2024? Because that's the key, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, first off, like you said, Kev, there was a couple of annual achievements or milestones that the company completed. And I think these will have a positive effect on margins overall. You know, for one, the company delivered more than 700 million rides in 2023. They also developed a new payment plan for drivers that'll essentially give them about 70% of the ride fees after external expenses. They also introduced this thing called um, Women Plus that essentially allows drivers or riders, sorry, to connect with women drivers and just making increasing the accessibility overall from that standpoint. So I think, you know, the big thing here is that they're really focused and even the CEO says on being customer obsessed and where they're trying to deliver that value is 
providing different optionality, but also ensuring that not just riders are doing well and succeeding, but also their drivers too. And I think this kind of does differ from Uber's business to some extent. You know, they have for a long time kind of been known as these more heavy capitalistic business that is trying to squeeze out every dollar they can. They're working tough hours for the Uber. And so for Lyft, on the other hand, I think they really want to focus on creating an image that is welcoming and creating an environment between riders and drivers where everything is thriving. But just by adding those kind of things and focusing on customers doesn't necessarily mean that margins are going to expand. So what are they also doing beyond just that? Well, first and foremost, the CEO said that they're looking to reduce their maintenance expenses once again this year, and that should help improve their free cash flow more margin overall. But another area that they see a lot of value in is actually through their partnership plan. So what they're trying to do here is they're basically partnering up with companies like Delta Airlines, Starbucks, Disney, Amazon, and Apple, and many others, and basically trying to incentivize riders to get direct drive or rides to those places. And the the CEO even mentions that about 20% of Lyft rides as of last year were actually from this direct partnership uh, delivery or destination drop off. So beyond that, I think that's like a huge value add overall. It's interesting. I, I didn't really expect or for me personally, like see that as something like beneficial, but clearly with 20% of all rides going in that direction, there's a lot of value to be had. And it just provides another reason or point of differentiation for Lyft overall. So I think those like those different efforts, as well as really trying to build goodwill with their customers speaks volumes. And, you know, I'm not really overly optimistic on the ride sharing market in general. I think it's a tough business with a lot of regulatory hurdles, but I think what Lyft is doing is they're, they're taking the right approach. And ultimately, we all know Uber is the big dog on campus. They, you know, they're valued at $168 million or billion compared to Lyft's $7.7 billion. But I think what they need to do is really establish that, build a strong world, word of mouth and reputation and offer different things. So yeah, cur- curious from your end, if you agree with that, or you think that it's going to be tough sledding and uh, that 500 basis point never or might not never be achievable. <laughs> well, do you ever use Lyft? When was the last time you booked a Lyft? And good point. I've never used Lyft. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> so I have, but very sparingly. The only time I ever <laughs> think to use Lyft is when Uber has surge pricing and it's cheaper to use Lyft. If if Lyft right. is even like a few percent discounted, I still use Uber just because I find it more reliable. There's more cars. I've had way more negative experiences with Lyft. Like when I was down in Miami, for example, oh, really? I stopped using Lyft because it would cancel on me more often than not. And, and for the record, anybody watching, I've never puked in a car or like smoked in a car or swore that like I've never done anything like that. Like my rating is mint. I'm a very yeah. polite guest, but for some reason I still would get canceled on all the time. Um, so I just yeah. had way worse experiences. So what it makes me think of if the only reason I'm willing to go to Lyft is because it's cheaper well, that's inherently an inferior business um, in itself. Mm-hmm. And if you look at some of the, like, you know, I just queued up a few, a comparison of, uh, you know, DoorDash, Uber, and Lyft, which is, they're kind of, you know, one moves food, one moves people, one moves food and people. And first off, the only one that actually has any earnings is Uber. Um, 
though there is a promise of free cash flow for Lyft, which I don't think is unreasonable to think they can get there this year. Like they're obviously the latest quarter show that they're making the right steps to get there. They just need to take it seriously on keeping costs in, in control and, you know, growing the business, not spending too much on sales and marketing, et cetera, et cetera. But it's just, a, it is still a promise of earnings, right? Whereas Uber is delivering them mm-hmm. currently, you know, a couple other things to look at. Um, return on equity for Uber is 20%. If barchart.com is correct, it's saying return on equity is negative 59% for Lyft. So it's just interesting. Now, on the other hand, though, sunshine and rainbows, clearly Lyft is the one that is the the company for the planet and for the people. So obviously there's something good to that. But <laughs> I think the, the ruthless business yeah. approach of Uber has, you know, exceeded the business results of Lyft in the short term anyways. So it's curious. I'm curious to see if these more wholesome uh, initiatives pay off for Lyft in the long run. I, I'd hope so <laughs> for the yeah. sake of humanity, if nothing else. <laughs> yeah, no, I, well, I think you like brought up a really important point and that's just the net for network effect associated with these businesses. So because Uber has way more drivers, it becomes a lot more le- reliable, like you said. And so that's probably a major area where Lyft needs to focus on is if they can bring in more drivers, make it much more attractive compared to what Uber is offering them, it'll likely increase their reliability and then ultimately the number of customers. But like you said, I, like again, I have no experience as a customer with them. I've always just by default used Uber. You know, sometimes it's really a pain in the butt, the prices that you pay for, like I'm in deep South Calgary away from a lot of the action that goes on. And it's typically on average, like a $50 ride every single time. And it's just like, how can it like, you know, I could take transit, but it's like, well, what the heck that it seems like highway robbery really, but it still hasn't changed me from looking for another option like Lyft. And so I think it's, it's one, again, one of those businesses, the economics are not super attractive. Clearly Uber has taken a very dominant position and, what they did really well is they scaled as fast as they could and reached a point where now they can start to charge. And because it's ingrained in our minds that they're kind of like the default option that they can start charging a higher profit and, or a higher premium as is, and people will likely stick with them. But, you know, again, I think, I think Lyft's taking the right approach. It's just a matter of like, is it enough to actually change consumer sentiment towards the business because like you said if you're if you're a potential customer and kev your experience in miami it wasn't satisfying you're probably not going to return to the business down there or you know as often as is if you have that negative experience so overall it's it's kind of a game of buying customer interest but also building enough drivers so that it can be a dependable product for you yeah so i mean it remains to be seen what happens with lyft i'd say it's it's got a lot of upside. The fact that it moved 70% on a typo and still finished up 35% even when they revised it downward, um, it just shows how badly people want a number two. <laughs> you know, There's always going to be room for a second competitor because Uber, I mean, the strategy was brilliant. Just like you said, network effects being the most important thing. Uh, look at Google Plus, for example. Uh, fan- it, was a, it was a great app. People were excited about it. Like It looked like it could totally re- um, compete with Facebook, but Facebook already had so many users that why were you going to create something new? And Uber's got the same thing. Now, the only time Uber could start losing that advantage is when people when they start creeping their prices up, which they have, especially with surge pricing, where I've never seen surge pricing on Lyft. So 
there's always going to be room for a second. Um, I honestly, I'd encourage you like download Lyft and when Uber looks too expensive, go on Lyft. It's, it's often cheaper. So I think there's always room for a number two, but I think with being the number two, you're probably going to have worse ratios, right? You're, you're just, you're going to be trading at a cheaper valuation. You'll probably never, um, achieve the, the extended valuation that like the bigger players like Uber might get, but maybe it still turns into a good business. They've just got a lot to prove before I get too excited. So, so that's Lyft. Go try it out deck. It's worth checking it out. Um, it I'd say we good. made good progress today. I'm happy with the, the conversation we had here. Lots to watch. You brought some wicked, wicked content to us this week. So Declan, man, good to see you. Thanks for not abandoning us like Pete. <laughs> I hope he's having fun golfing wherever he is, <laughs> but this is fun. <laughs>